Hey, welcome to Afterthoughts Recommend or Refute. Uh, this is our chance to talk about something we saw recently and want to recommend or refute. Uh, or in John's case, recommend and refute. Burn. How dare you get me like this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm Ryan King, and joining me there is John Garcia and Michael Dixon. What's up? Yo. Well, I guess I'll I'll kick us off and get started, uh, and I'm, I'm immediately going to semi-cheat and go to a TV show uh, that I watched a while ago, but I started watching the, the movie of it, um, and it just made me want to talk more about the show, um, and that's the anime... Violet Evergarden? If it is your wish, I will travel anywhere to meet you. Her existence had been kept hidden from everyone. However, some of the people who knew about her said that she was a weapon without a heart. I want to know what I love you means. Violet, you know that... Well, you know the war is over. I am the Major's tool. If he doesn't need me anymore, then I should be discarded. You're going to learn many things in the future. Although, it might be easier to keep living if you never learn them. My name is Violet Evergarden. Which is a 13-episode uh, 2018 show. It's on Netflix. That's how I saw it. I think Netflix distributed it right away. Uh, and so it has subs and dubs, and they're decent dubs. If someone you know, wants to watch it that way, I, I highly recommend this, is what I'm going to say there at the top. Um, it is the story of a essentially a war-torn world where our protagonist Violet Evergarden, most anime name ever. I love how I love how stupid like an anime names are for characters that it's just like they're just <laughs> looking at two things and being like, "All right, cool, that's their name now." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like Cry Macho. <laughs> <laughs> the Clint Eastwood anime. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> She was a an orphan who essentially just is used as a as a child weapon and has she doesn't even seem to show emotion. She's like never learned how to interact. She's only been told commands and you know to fight. Uh, in the last fight of the last battle of the war, she loses both her arms as well as her commander, who's the only person who's been with her. Anything gave her her name. Everything that's it's all revolved around him. And so she's then cast into a society that's at peace and has no clue what to do or who she is or, or what the next thing is to try to live life on her own. Her commander's final words were essentially that she should live a life and that also that he loves her and she doesn't know what that means. So she's like early on is like asking people like, what did he mean by that? Like, what does that mean? And so the show is essentially her exploring, like actually getting through these emotions the PTSD, honestly, I think is presented of like having to live in the society and what does it mean? And I, I was this person before. Uh, and we also see a lot of characters as she interacts with them who are also affected by the war and like what they're going through now. The beginning, she takes a job as an auto memories doll, which they translate differently. I watched the sub and dub version of it and they choose different words that none of them ever really nail exactly what it is, but they just transcribe stuff for people. <laughs> And <laughs> just an Amazon bot. Yeah. Essentially, very few people can actually write uh, just due to constantly having been under war for this long. And so they go into the post office and the post office has these, you know, they choose to have pretty girls, but pretty mostly pretty girls who will write down things for you so that you can mail them to your, you know, your relatives, loved ones, you know, whatever the, the case is. 
So they uh, are so administrative assistants, essentially, <laughs> yeah, but they're yeah. called auto memory bots, which just so it will sound more dystopian. There's where I will. It's all like steampunky, <laughs> right? So they kind of want it. It's an anime. They got to get a cool name. There's some background story that just kind of gets casually tossed around every once in a while about a guy whose wife had gone blind and he made a doll that would then type things out for her. And that's why they're called that. But I'm like, that makes no sense. <laughs> and I wrote, but okay, I guess. Um, but I will say, like, it's so each episode is really, it, this is sort of like quote monster of the week. It's letter of the week. Each episode is typically revolving around Violet going and meeting someone, writing a letter for them. Through that, we experience a little bit about that character and their depth, but also Violet then is able to reflect on her own self through that story and she evolves a little bit more as things go and she has her arms i mentioned she lost her arms you're like how is she typing uh she had her arms replaced by completely like mechanical metal arms which also add to the like coldness of her to people that they kind of do see her as like this doll you know robot kind of thing um the animation is really beautiful the whole design of it and everything is really beautiful and the the main reason i like i really really recommend it other than the like ugly cries that you'll probably have um is that it spends a lot of time on the emotions in the facial expressions body language the you know what people kind of look at or see um they usually don't see an anime because it tends to try to be cheap and you know i'm not being mean i'm being literal that they are trying to get as many episodes out as fast as possible with as little animation, which is why you think of anime as just like mouth flapping and nothing else is going on because that's honestly what they do to save animation budget. Um, and this is a show where they're actually very carefully, subtly trying to show things in, in the faces and in the motions of people, which I, I really, really appreciated it. So I watched it twice. I watched it with my family. It's mostly watchable with a family. The flashbacks to the war are a little intense and there is blood, but otherwise everything else is pretty okay for a family that's okay to process really complicated emotions um but yeah no i really 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 dug it the first time i watched it i was very surprised and immediately engaged and just sat down and churned through it enough that once i kind of knew like oh more of what was going on and who these characters were like going back and re-seeing things i appreciate it again on another watch um so it's a very very high recommend for me yeah it sounds like so we talked i know um Sometime previous, Ryan, we talked about only yesterday where there was an attempt to make subtlety in facial animation yeah. a thing, and it it comes off really uncanny and kind of weird. Yeah, so animation and design here is pretty traditional, like anime look. So it is very bright, you know, very over the top in a lot of things. The yeah, the faces are not like only yesterday where they're supposed to be real faces, and it gets creepy. These are very stylized anime faces. But what you get are the sort of like subtle like eye movements, you know, you can have your eyes like close some or your, you know, mouth starts to open as if you want to say something and then you close it. A lot of, a lot of body language. Um, Violet is, part of it is that Violet is so stoic to begin with that when she does have some kind of emotion, it's clear. Like it stands out a lot of like suddenly she has sort of a reaction to something, you know, and pulls back or you can see her shake or something like that. You kind of know, like, that's a really big emotion for her when she's had none. Um, and there's a lot of, like, the characters in the background kind of have things going on, and you try to figure out, like, okay, why are they doing that? Why are they saying that? The um, 
at least three, I think three of the characters uh, have clothing decisions that end up being part of their character where they purposely like dress in a way because of who they think they should be or how they should present themselves. And these are just like really mild, like side things are not majorly important. But even though I thought that was cool to be like, at the beginning, you're like, wow, okay, that character's dressed over the top. And then later you're like, okay, it's still over the top because it's an anime, but you're like, but they gave it a reason that makes sense. It isn't they breathe through their skin or whatever the hell from Metal Gear. Yeah. What was it in Metal Gear? Yeah, yeah, not yeah. That that's bullshit. why she wears a bikini. She breathes through her skin. That's totally it. <laughs> but it, it is someone who wants to present themselves like overly, overtly over the top attractive. That's part of what they're wanting to do. Yeah, maybe that's a you know cheaty reason, but at least it's like, okay, it does give some character depth that was thought through. You're talking about the emotions and the facial expressions. Do you feel like there's influence from like German expressionism or melodrama or anything like that that they're trying to bring into it? I would say it tends to, especially with anime, you do see a lot that comes from Japanese theater. So uh, Noah theater or Kabuki, or most people okay. you know have heard. They use some of that where you kind of have like the type of character. Like, all right, I'll just back up a bit. So Kabuki and Noah essentially are always built around, like the characters don't necessarily have names. It's just like the princess, the warrior, the demon and that the mask tells you what that character is and everything you need to know about them mm -hmm. um so the anime doesn't go that far but it uses the same looks expressions body types things that you would have seen in that old theater to just automatically tell you like that's who this is um sort of like a wrestler they come out and it's like oh i know it's the good guy or the bad guy right by how they carry themselves and what they do so it's a lot of that where it's kind of like you can tell by the way they look and act really quickly or how they carry themselves like who they are, what they're thinking. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's that, like, I will say it turns it up a bit for an anime because it actually is trying to go for some realistic reactions, not just the over-the-top obvious type of, of motion. So it is that subtle where I'm like, I'm not quite sure where that comes from because typically anime and, and that, like, kabuki is, like, over-the-top. Yeah, it's really obvious what they're feeling, right? Anime typically has that, like, crazy, like, oh, there's a giant raindrop over their head or they're so angry their hair catches on fire this is a very subtle <laughs> this is on the other the far other side of the spectrum yeah so uh, one other thing when we're talking about like the tropes and trappings of anime um the animes i think of are the ones that are probably more shonen inspired which are the ones geared towards like adolescent boys like dragon ball z where people scream at each other all the time or <laughs> they expound there's just so much information of what's going on screen just to buy time um, this sounds like it's way more character driven, like it has a lot more personality to the stories that are told, but is there still that note of they're telling you things that you already know or you already recognize or do, does it really go way more into that subtlety in storytelling? There, I will say there are some stories that are pretty much on their face. Um, you know, there, there's one where it's like uh, a sister and a brother whose parents died in the war, the brother had been off fighting he comes back and he's injured and he just is drinking all the time mm. and the sister's trying to get a job you know trying to get something respectable and then she ends up wanting to write a letter to him and kind of to their parents like and, and so it's like that one you gotta know where that's going really that's relatively straightforward kind of story but there are other ones where you kind of assume a, something about somebody at the beginning and then as things are revealed as the letters eventually get written the idea is supposed to be that through talking this out, through Violet reinterpreting, you know, through her own lens, what they're trying to say, they realize something they didn't even realize that mm -hmm. they were feeling. 
And so when you get to one of those type of episodes, it does, there are moments that hit where you're like, oh man, like it, it does have some emotional depth that is it that is much more than surface level. Like it feels well-rounded. Cool. So, nice. Yes. Yeah, there's some ones that are like downright heartbreaking. I'll oh. be honest. Yeah. I'm gonna have to check it out. It's a limited series too, right? You said like yeah, episodes. so there's the 13 episodes that are on Netflix that I've watched, totally recommend. There's a movie that kind of continues that, that's that's Violet Evergarden, colon, the movie, that is just the continuation of the series. It's a little bit weirder. It's edited in kind of an odd way, but it does kind of continue the same concepts and, and story. And then there's just like side story movies that are just like, could have been extra episodes. Yeah. You know, they're just the same, like, a little bit longer, she goes and writes a letter for someone. All right, John, what do you, what do you have for us? Yeah. Uh, so I'm back on my schlock shit. Um, I always back always on your schlock shit. Schlock yeah, schlock shit. <laughs> I feel like I, I have to, uh, to some extent, um, bring something to the table. That's uh, a little goofy, really entertaining. Um, is this one porn? Kinda, it's not porn. Yeah. Not it's not porn. porn. Okay. I'll just say that we're done with that. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I've, I've got another vinegar syndrome movie. It was a, um, an action is pitched as an action movie called Sworn to Justice. In a city torn by violence, a crime comes too close to home. They murdered my sister and my nephew. We're gonna nail these animals. Your Honor, motion to strike. And when justice fails, warning a little perjury, are we? With no one. Good way to get yourself hurt. I'm desperate. I'll try anything. To trust, psychologist Jenna Dane is forced. I help defend people. That's my job. Take justice into her own hands. It's a 1996 directed by Paul Maslach. I've never heard of him, but uh, I kind of want to see more of Paul's movies. And I want to see more of the stars movies. Uh, this stars Cynthia Rothrock. That's a, just a fantastic name. <laughs> um, and this movie is uh, kind of bonkers in the plot is set up to be pretty straightforward a woman comes home. She's a um, PhD psychologist at a local institute. And when she gets to her home, she finds out that her sister and nephew have been murdered by some home intruders. The home intruders chase her out of the house and she falls and hits her head on a tree, um, giving her not amnesia, but psychic powers. Uh, okay. okay. And right. I guess she was just always great at martial arts. So the rest of the movie, Yet she couldn't avoid a tree. Yes. She didn't know how to, and it, it, it's comedic too. Like <laughs> for something that is so traumatizing at the beginning, like she's running and it's just scary. And then she literally like bonks every branch down the tree. <laughs> um, she becomes hell bent on trying to avenge her sister and figure out who murdered her. Uh, and, and I guess her nephew too, sure. Whatever in her quest to avenge her sister, she becomes a vigilante with psychic powers who is just using these powers where she can touch anything and immediately see uh, the most recent past events that happened to this object. So she goes into like a convenience store, for instance, to get her medicine or some Advil for her headache after she fell out of the tree, touches the Advil and realizes that the convenience store is being robbed. And the, the robbers are in the back room and she needs they to touch the aspirin. Yes, or? I guess. <laughs> so she needs to bust in there and fuck them up. So she busts in and that's where this takes a turn because I thought this was going to be pretty straightforward, low budget schlock. 
Um, what this is, is something completely different where it has a lot of personal touches that make it a weird watch. Uh, the moment she kicks through those doors and finds those goons holding up this convenience store owner, hot Latin rhythms break through. <laughs> Into As the they're scheme. wont to do. Yeah. And she just starts fighting them with, uh, I don't know what martial art it is, but she's kicking their ass. And the entire time that she's beating up these goons, they keep falling back onto a cardboard mat that's on the ground for them to fall on. But they break dance in the middle of falling and then continue to fall. It's got like these really over the top choreographed sequences of fighting where like that just set the tone for everything else in that it set like no expectation for what the tone should be. Cause we've already seen a traumatic crescendo of some people being murdered, a woman falling down a tree in a Zucker brothers style, and then a hot Latin rhythm infused Kung Fu sequence in the back room of a convenience store where the villains like break dance whenever they get beaten the shit out of. I, it had me, it broke my brain in 15 minutes flat and the rest of the movie I was trying to figure out what the hell was going to happen next. And it just hooked me that way. Um, Cynthia Rothrock plays probably the most overconfident character. Like she's super smug the whole time. And so it's one of those things where like, you can never really resonate with the character, despite her going through a traumatic past of having family members murdered. Being fallen down a tree. Yeah, and falling oh, down a tree. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but I forgot about the murder either, part. Either one. <laughs> um, but it gives like this air of like, she knows she's badass and she's really just trying to do anything to, to kind of show that off in the movie itself. I'm not too familiar with the rest of the production notes on it, but there's a lot of scenes where Cynthia Rothrock just gets naked or gets like a little bit skimpy clothes and characters nice. react to that. <laughs> so like there's some hardened detective who's investigating the murder of her uh, sister and nephew. And he walks into her house and just follows her up to her room while she's getting changed and he's like creeping on her and she's John, totally fine with it. It's, it's not porn. Uh, <laughs> I swear. <laughs> um, it's Cynthia Rothrock just showing off her stuff for people, I guess. And then she has a Kung Fu love scene with a guy that she f finds a connection with where they both strip down and start doing Kung Fu to Latin rhythm. And that's their love making moment. It's, it's so bizarre. But I thought a movie sworn to justice would be about something more Steven Seagal-ish. It does sound like a Steven Seagal movie. <laughs> right? And yet it just takes so many curves the entire time that you're watching it. Um, and even the ending, I was like, what the fuck? It has a plot twist that just comes out of nowhere. And I, I was just like, I guess, just fuck it. When it ended, Sasha and I were both just dumbfounded by what we saw. And I was like, well, I would watch it again, if anything, just to try to figure out what the fuck that was. Um, but some of the choreography was really good. Like they actually do know the martial arts that they're trying to portray it and everything around it just does feel like there's these tiny fingerprints of what Cynthia Rothrock wanted in a movie or what somebody wanted in a movie um, that it, it felt oddly personal and low budget and goofy and kind of fun. So I think it's a good time. If you watch it with friends, you'll probably have a lot of laughs and wonder what the fuck's going on. And, uh, if you watch it alone, it might break your brain and you might still find yourself laughing just yeah. like on your own. So, uh, yeah, it was it was a bonkers time and I would recommend it. Is this one of those movies where the trailers like Cynthia Rothrock is sworn to justice? Cynthia Rothrock, the reigning queen of martial arts. 
to justice. Pretty much. That's exactly what I think. That, and I think that the trailer probably opens up with Cynthia Rothrock is an explosion. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the title like gets bigger on the screen. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. There, there's a lot of other quirky characters that are thrown into the mix, too. And some random character arcs that happen for no reason. You know how we were upset about that happening, Cocaine Bear? Here, it's yeah. actually kind of fun when it happens for no reason. You're like, oh, shit, I guess that was happening. Fuck it. I don't know. Uh, in for a penny, in for a pound. I love how you look at the like secondary cast of a movie like this, and it's like known actors that you know are just like phoning in at this point. Mm-hmm. Like Brad Dorif. Brad Dorif, Lord of the Rings. I guess he's like one of the big bads in here. And then Walter Koenig. Walter Koenig, Star Trek. And I'm like, they must have just had nothing else going yeah. on, and it's just an easy paycheck. They show up for one day, crap out their lines. Who cares? Yeah, Walter Koenig did show up for one day. Yeah. <laughs> it was in like okay. one scene where he basically, <laughs> Cynthia Rothrock goes through several tests to prove that she's psychic, and she fails all of those tests. And he's like, you failed all your psychic tests. It, you must be a psychic because you knew how to fail them. <laughs> and it's just like, that's the only reason he shows up is to yeah. prove that she's psychic through inverse logic. <laughs> so this is like a Batman movie. Basically, yes. it, it reminded me of, uh, we've talked about New York Ninja. It kind of reminded me mm-hmm. of New York Ninja where some average person just for no reason at all becomes a superhero in their town. And they have all of these characters. Like the DA is like, we got to bust whoever this vigilante is. People say it's a buff dude beating people up and they're break dancing in the back rooms of convenience stores. Yeah. Um, and, but the DA is like, but God damn it. All these people love this vigilante. <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> I can do about it. We got to wait until after the election season. It's like, what the fuck? I have, uh, maybe it's good news, maybe it's bad news, John. Um, yep. Paul Maslach has directed only one other thing, so it would be very easier for you. Well, I don't know, it may be hard to find, to catch up on his work. It's a 15-minute video from 2008 called Doing a Deal in India. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know what that's about. I'm but... pretty sure it's about doing a deal in India. <laughs> I, I think it's just telling you right there what it is. He did produce a few other movies, he's though, like Cyber some, Tracker. He's and produced Red some Sun other Rising. crap, it looks like. But yeah, <laughs> this looks on amazing. the other hand, you're going to spend a long time on Cynthia Rothrock's catalog, though. Oh, yeah. Cynthia Rothrock actually did provide a voice for New York Ninja. She was one of the VOs yeah. for that. Oh, no way. Yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I'm kind of excited to dig into Cynthia Rothrock's backlog because she has uh, this movie called Martial Law that looks awesome. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure okay. Kung Fu fighting law enforcement. Uh, and the tagline is brothers, cops. One enforces the law, the other breaks it. That sounds uh, very fascist. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> and um, racist. <laughs> it's going to be, I'm sure it's really dumb, but uh, I'm kind of excited to watch more of the movies that she's in because of this. So, yeah, um, Sworn to Justice, just a weird, wild time about a psychic woman who's a vigilante that knows martial arts. Interesting. How uh how does Sasha feel when you make her watch these these types of movies? How does that go over? She has, unlike Darla, she has slowly fallen into enjoying it. <laughs> she no longer she'll question some of the choices that we make, but now she's kind of in on it and she has no will to resist anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> yeah. Oh fine. She All right. she is able to we're able to now exchange what we like about these movies, which is interesting. I'm noticing a bit of like things that we're differing in taste on and that kind of stuff when it comes to the, the way that the movie's portrayed. But she is usually able to get into it and have a good time unless it's really fucking boring. And I don't mean like there's a lot of dialogue going on or any of that, but just like, 
a movie where people wander around in the woods and do nothing and there's a monster somewhere, but the monster shows up for the last five minutes of the movie. We would both hate that, obviously, but <laughs> she would be especially loud probably about how much she's just like, Ugh, I just don't care about any of these fucking characters or any of that. Yeah. So uh, I think she's come a long way since I started showing her vinegar syndrome. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if this... Does this count as like emotional abuse or some kind of oh, like definitely. <laughs> t- yeah. domestic issue? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I might need to stop then. So <laughs> I need to go reflect on my choices. <laughs> I apologize, everybody. And <laughs> Sasha, this is a public apology to you. <laughs> maybe maybe let Sasha pick the movie next time. <laughs> <laughs> she has. <laughs> Did she pick this one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, okay. Is it... Do you just put all the vinegar syndrome? I hide all the good movies yeah. when she in a picks. bag and shake yeah. them up, and then she has to pick one out yeah, of the bag. That's, how, like that's that my legal count. loophole. <laughs> that's funny. Um, well, yeah. Uh, all right, cool. What you got? Uh, yeah. So I watched a classic film that I had seen once before in seventh grade English class, and didn't really remember much about it. I feel like a movie that I saw before I graduated high school. I just feel like I haven't seen, you know, as an adult, and like re-watching it now it's like i'm actually just watching it for the first time but um i watched 12 angry men you are going to try a man for murder the awesome power to kill will suddenly be thrust into your hands on the point of that night a man's life is at stake i'm just saying it's possible and I say it's not possible. I want you to watch this because I don't want to have to do it again. I'll make myself about six or seven inches shorter, okay? How can I be positive about anything? I don't understand you people. I mean, all these picky little points you keep bringing up, they don't mean nothing. Watch them and pray, for someday you may become one of them. Twelve men with the smell of violent death in their nostrils. Which was fucking great. Um... It's the directorial debut of Sidney Lumet, uh, who went on to do Dog Day Afternoon and Network and a bunch of great stuff like that, Serpico. Um, It's a fascinating movie. It's based on a teleplay from 1957 that was like an hour-long teleplay, and then it was extended into a little over an hour and a half for a feature-length film. But Henry Fonda saw the teleplay, really liked it, wanted to turn it into a movie, got in touch with the writer, became a producer on it, and basically, like, forced the movie to to get made um i think it's, it's just a fascinating analysis of the american legal system through the perspective of the jury process and only through the jury process like the film opens on some out exterior shots of the courthouse then like the judge reading the instructions to the jury and then you're just in the jury room for the rest of the movie and it like it it feels like a play in that it all takes place in one room but it's shot really dynamically. It's shot by Boris Kaufman, who um, is Ziga Vertov's brother, and he shot uh, on the waterfront and a bunch of you know famous movies from that time that are kind of outside of the standard Hollywood system. Um, he lived in New York, and he like refused to do any work outside of New York, and he would just work on stuff that was being shot there. So you know he worked a lot with Sidney Lumet and. Um, Elliot Kazan and, and some other directors that were working more out of that area of the country. But it's it's shot really dynamically and it's edited really well and it kind of builds as the movie goes where the editing pace kind of picks up and the camera moves in closer to the faces of the jurors and you really feel the dynamism of the movie where it, it doesn't feel 
kind of like that we talked about the whale it feels like a stage play um they move the camera around a decent amount in the whale but it still feels kind of constricted there 12 angry men really doesn't feel like that at all it feels like a movie and uh it's just an interesting story where you know they start out in the jury room and all the jurors except for henry fonda are convinced that this poor hispanic kid is guilty of killing his father and there's a lot of evidence that seems to support their theory that this guy is guilty he is barely 18 uh the judges made it clear that he is getting the death uh, sentence he's going to the electric chair if they find him guilty uh most of the jurors are like look let's just wrap this up and get out of here like why do we need to talk about this this is super obvious one of them's like i got baseball tickets i'm going to the yankee game let's get the fuck out and henry fonda is like guys there's a kid's life on the line here like it's at least worth talking about i'm not convinced that he's guilty he probably is but i'm not i think there is reasonable doubt here and let's actually hash it out and just the way that all plays out is is fascinating how they kind of chip away little by little at the the proof that the prosecution has put forward and it really paints a picture of a, a very unfair american justice system where the prosecution has the power of the state behind it all the money all the evidence and the defense is fully reliant on um you know the prosecution to provide evidence and on you know like you're you're if you can't afford a good lawyer you're stuck with a public defender your public defender may be great or they may be terrible it just really depends on who you get but it's you know probably the lowest paying job in the legal industry and so you end up with you know lawyers that maybe necessarily aren't um you know at the, at the top of their game you have some public defenders that are just absolute saints that do that job because they view it as their civic duty and that's fucking awesome um in this case, the kid didn't have a very good public defender, and the jury is having to analyze things that the defender didn't bother to ask the witnesses. And he, you know, they're trying to do more work than the defense did to actually figure out if this kid is, is guilty. And, you know, a lot of the conversation between the jurors is like, well, you can't prove he's not guilty. You know, it's, it's got to be him. Like, who else would it be? And, you know, Henry Fonda keeps coming back to it's not about whether we can prove that he's not guilty, it's whether we can prove that he is guilty. And it doesn't matter if we don't have any other suspects in, in the case and that like he's the most likely guy. It's, is there any reasonable doubt here? And we are the only people between him and the electric chair and we have to take this seriously. Um, so Henry Fonda is really great in it. Lee J. Cobb is incredible as juror number three. None of them have names. They're just jurors <laughs> yeah, one through 12, yeah. which is awesome. I think, you know, you're just in... You're just in the shit right into the argument. The, you get a lot of character development through their discussion of the case, but you don't get a lot of backstory. You don't really, you know, you don't even learn the, their names. They're just calling each other by numbers because they know they're never going to see each other again after this happens, right? They're here doing their civic duty and then they're gone. So, um, you know, Lee J. Cobb is, is really great as a guy who's absolutely convinced this kid is guilty. And Henry Fonda is kind of the other side of that coin. You know, just always wanting them to keep asking questions and to to figure out what's going on there. Um, Ed Begley Sr. is is in it. Um, there's a lot of actors that um, were kind of unknown at the time, like um, Henry Fonda and Lee J. Cobb were kind of the big names in the movie. But you have actors like Martin Balsam and E.J. Marshall, that you know, Jack Klugman, that kind of got bigger after Twelve Angry Men and had solid careers in Hollywood because of their performances in this movie. Um, so. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. I think it's just an, an incredible script, really great acting, and it's, it's really impressive how dynamic it feels given that the movie is very claustrophobic 
in this little room. Um, it takes place in the heat of the summer and the, there's no AC and the fan's not working. And like, you know, you see these guys getting sweaty and you feel the heat and the just the oppressive heat in this room, despite it being a black and white film and, you know, them not being able to kind of play on, you know, using light to to show heat. But you you feel like you, you're sweating watching the movie. You feel like you're in there with them. So, um, yeah, I, I, I liked it a lot. Have you seen the um, 30 minute Comedy Central 12 Angry Men one to one parody that Amy Schumer did? No. Called 12 oh, Angry no. Men Inside Amy Schumer. The defendant is accused of committing a heinous crime. You gentlemen of the jury are facing a grave responsibility. Thank you, gentlemen. Today's vote decides if Amy Schumer is hot enough to be on the television. If we decide that she is not, then she's going to lose her television show or be put to immediate death. Uh, you know, to be honest, I kind of zoned out during that part. <laughs> uh, and it's all about whether or not Amy Schumer is hot enough to be on television. That's oh like the, the opening scene in the court where they're like, you have your evidence, debate men. And they're all like, do you have a reasonable yeah. chub? Do you have a reasonable chub? Get out of my do you face! Have a reasonable chub? No! <laughs> <laughs> it's like flawlessly one-to-one -one created. If you watch this movie, then watch this after. And <laughs> you okay, have interesting. Time. I'll have to, I'll have to be able to look out for that. <laughs> I think it's interesting. Like, I will say that it, it presents an idealistic, like classic American thinking on the way that, you know, uh, uh, the system would work, but it does, it does start off where they're biased. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of appreciate that. And it does have the really powerful scene where one of the jurors, just outright as racist. Yeah. Like yeah. it's not even like, it's not even like, you know, there's a subtle undertone of it for a while. And then one of the characters is just outright racist. And then everyone else starts turning their backs away from him. That's really powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, 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 you know, this is 1957. So it's a time where, you know, things are in flux. Um, but pre civil rights, but it's still pre civil rights. Right. And, mm -hmm. and to actually directly call that out of like, yeah, in, in court cases, like a person might be sitting in there making up their mind. It's 12 white men, and it probably absolutely would have been at that time. And mm -hmm. honestly, still a lot of times is, way too many times still is. Um, and one of them could just be racist, and that's all he gives a crap about. Yep. And one of them could add a baseball game later, and that's all he gives a crap about, and your life is on the line. Yeah, and yeah, there's all these all these prejudices. There's a lot of classism among the, the jurors, too, you know, against, oh, you know, this this kid lives in the slums, you know, about those people, you know, and, and mm -hmm. like, some of the characters mean that in a racist way and some mean it in a classist way, but there's like just so much, uh, presupposition based on kind of hatred and their, their thoughts about who the defendant is based on his race and class and just what they think of when they look at him, um, rather than looking at the actual information in the case. To, to Ryan's point too, there is a bit of idealism, but it also has that grittiness, that kind of griminess of, um, American sentiments at the time, uh, towards different classes, towards different races. I was thinking also about this compared to like Mr. Smith goes to Washington, which just paints a completely different picture really? of the political system <laughs> where you can just stand in front of a bunch of people and filibuster until you pass out and you're a goddamn hero and you've done and everything. Ted Cruz never forgot that movie. That's right. <laughs> he likes his green eggs and ham. He likes them, Sam. I am. Oh my God. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I remember I saw this as well in uh, freshman year at UT. They showed it to our undergrad class in like the first month we were there. And a bunch of college kids that were just like, what the fuck are we going to watch some black and white film for? And I had just gotten into my black and white film phase. So I was like, all right, I'm ready to see where this goes. 
And like the audience, the audience was, you know, a bunch of like 18, 19 year olds just chattering about for a little bit. But the moment that like things actually kicked into these men arguing over the fate of somebody that was like a pin drop silence. And it just kind of speaks to the swell this movie has within its dialogue. Like there are moments where you're just left speechless when you're watching it. Like, damn, what's going to happen next? We're going to talk about as many times as I've seen it now. Um, still watching it. I'm like utterly silent and fixated on everything on screen. It's, it's really captivating. Yeah. This is totally a movie. If people are like, eh, old movies, black and white that you can put in front of them and it's just immediately engaging. Yeah. yeah Casablanca, I feel like is that way too. I'm, I'm surprised oh, that like, sure. you put it down and people are immediately into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. And I think, you know, it, it's interesting to see such a cynical movie from 1957, you know, like you, you don't really think of that era of America as putting out movies and, and art that is cynical. Like it almost feels more like a seventies film because of that, that cynicism in it. And it's just clearly like, it's showing how broken the American justice system is by not even showing you all of the problems that led to the jury room. It's just completely evident when you're in there, all of the issues that have, have come up throughout that process. And like the, at the end of the day, the only thing standing between the defendant and the chair is these 12 guys. And, you know, in, in every criminal case where there's a jury, like that's really what it comes down to, just what happens in that room and the, the empathy of the jurors and their ability to kind of parse through the bullshit of, you know, what the lawyers are telling them, what the judge is telling them and determine, you know, whether, whether that person is guilty or not. Did you know that they remade this movie in 1997? It was directed by William Friedkin. Yeah. Um, I, I, if not, I'm not big on William Friedkin remakes. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, we talked about Sorcerer uh, as opposed to um, Wages, of uh, Wages of Fear. Wages of Fear. Yeah. So I, I, I feel like you can't make this movie better than it already is. I, I think like given the premise, it just accomplishes on everything so well. I just have a hard time believing that it would be worth watching a remake of this. Like you've got so many talented people making this thing and bringing it all together. That I, I just don't, I wouldn't want to watch a different version of it. I'm kind of fascinated by this, the cast for the remake, though, because it's got George C. Scott, Ossie Davis, James Gandolfini, Tony Danza. Like, they have a lot oh, of diversity, too, in it. But I was kind of curious if they try to do anything with that or make tweaks and adaptation bits to it. Does George um, C. Scott play the Lee J. Cobb role? I don't know. number three. Does he, let me see. He is he sure number three. Yeah. That. yeah, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah, that's the fit. Do you think this uh, boy can commit a murder? Oh, baby, can he? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you want to see him? It's really something to see. <laughs> and I love Ossie Davis, so that that yeah. made you know. It sounds like an interesting cast, but I don't know. It's just the the original is so good. I mean, it's it's not even the original because there was a teleplay in the in '54, but you know the the original movie from '57 is just so good. I I don't know. I don't know why you would even want to try to remake that. William Friedkin's just obsessed with remaking other yeah, right, remaking. <laughs> yeah, Maybe guess. he put a bridge in the middle of this where the jurors have to cross it in the middle of the rain. <laughs> as, <laughs> as a studio, though, I could be like, it's a name that's known and it's yep. so cheap. Like, we pay for the sure, actors, yeah. but everything else is almost free. On the Criterion Blu-ray, they have the 1954 teleplay, and I didn't watch it. Mm. I was just like, uh, I don't know if that's worth doing you know like just the movie's so good again i just don't know if i want to watch a different version of it it's written by the same guy but it's not directed by Sidney lumet it doesn't have henry fonda and lee j cobb in it it's not shot by boris kaufman like it's made for tv it's just and it's shorter so they don't get to kind of delve into the characters as much so 
Um, I decided not to watch it, but it may be interesting to check out at some point. You mentioned people going on to have careers after this. I cannot not hear Piglet. It was pretty interesting. In John Fielder, this is one of his like early roles. I mean, I've never been on a jury before. And he had so many. He voiced Piglet after this? Perhaps if, if we could think of a way of, of unbouncing Tigger, uh, it would be a very good idea, huh? Yes, yeah, he uh, became a major voice actor, but he had so many TV roles for so long. This is one of his, like, very first things. And if you listen to him, you'll be like, yeah, this is, is big lit. Like, his yeah, regular yeah, voice yeah. is a lot like it. Like, uh-huh. And he plays kind of a mousy he character does. He has a super high-pitched voice. He's very shy and kind of just wants yeah. to go along with whatever other everybody else is saying. But then he he got into uh in, early into Disney and he has a ton of like Disney movie voice roles and then Piglet and then he just that's kind of all in the, in his later years. That's all he was doing. <laughs> that makes sense. So they got to do a Winnie the Pooh, Twelve Angry Men. Is what I'm hearing. <laughs> uh, I would watch. <laughs> hey, it's in the public domain Rabbit's now. The racist yeah. one. Oh like... yeah, dude. If Winnie the Pooh is the racist, <laughs> <turn> rabbit <laughs> no, it'd have to be. It would be Rabbit. That would oh, be. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm gonna have to all chew him out. Oh, the owl would be Henry Fonda. I don't know. <laughs> Eeyore would be the one that just wants to go to the baseball game. <laughs> yeah, I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> all right, so then we have. That sounds like recommends all right all the way around. So three for three. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, recommend for Violet Evergarden, 13 episodes on Netflix. We have recommend for Sworn to Justice. To Justice. Not starring Steven, and, Se- Steven Seagal. Yeah, <laughs> yes. not a Steven Seagal movie. Cynthia Rothrock. <laughs> yeah, and, and all Cynthia Rothrock productions, apparently. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, a glowing recommend for 12 Angry Men, uh, not the 1997 version, the the original 1957 one. Yes. Yeah. And we'll, yeah. all, we'll all have to watch the uh, the, the comedy one. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, the Amy Schumer <laughs> version. The Schumer one. <laughs> Thanks again for joining us on uh, Recommend or Refute. <laughs> um, I'm Ryan King, and with me... John Garcia. Michael Dixon. Thanks for putting over their bullshit. 